All right, let's uh, open up our Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6 this morning. Canceled. Have you heard that word enough yet this year? I'm sure all of us on one level or another, there's something that we were going to be a part of this year that has been canceled. Maybe you had a trip that you take or a work thing or school or whatever it may be. And it's, it's cost, probably. Some of you, you've missed out on things you were really looking forward to. But also, when you look at things that have been canceled throughout our society, there's often huge financial losses that have come along with that. You know, even you look at the sports world and, uh, you know, how all of that's been thrown into turmoil and events that haven't been able to happen. There were millions and millions of dollars that were riding on that event happening. And that's been trouble for many, many people, except for one notice, notable Exception, the tennis tournament, Wimbledon. You guys familiar with Wimbledon, right? It's one of the four majors in in tennis, played in London, always on grass tennis courts every year. Well, it was canceled this year due to uh, the coronavirus, but Wimbledon had pandemic insurance. Did you know that? Starting back in about 2003 when SARS was a thing, they started spending uh, about $1.9 million a year for pandemic insurance. So if you do the math over the last uh, 17 years or so, they spent about $31.7 million on pandemic insurance. And when they canceled this year, they received a payout of about $142 million. So that worked out for them. And uh, you might be thinking, that, that, might, that, that sounds nice. I wish I had some of that. And well, while probably no one in this room has pandemic insurance, I bet there's plenty of people in this room that have life insurance. And you're prepared in case that there is something catastrophic that happens to you, uh, you want the people around you to be taken care of. But still, I mean, if you really think about it, how much good is life insurance going to be for you on the day that you die? Uh, not, not really any good, right? Thankfully, it will bless the people around you. What we're going to see in John chapter 6 today is Jesus describing an offer of security. I guess you could call it insurance, or maybe we should say assurance, that no matter what happens, whether things are good in life, whether things are bad in life, whether you live or whether you die, that it will be okay with you. And that's the promise that we are going to see as we pick up the story again in John chapter 6. We started... In verse 1, and we saw the miracle that Jesus performs, how he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And and then we pick it up, we picked it up last week in verse 22, where the crowd now finds Jesus and they get into this verbal back and forth, where first they want to know how he came there, and Jesus says, Hey, you guys have the wrong goals. You're just seeking this bread that that perishes, this bread that is not going to last long. And then he tells them, you also, you have the wrong methods because you assume that by doing the good things, by being good enough, you can earn eternal life. When no, it's not something that can be earned, it is a gift. And then he tries to reveal to them, you have the wrong focus. You're focusing on a what, this bread of heaven, when you should be focused on a who. And that's what reaches the climactic statement in verse 35, where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. And so we led up to that last week. And today we want to just review again verses 34 and 35 and then study onward to verse 51. So please follow along while I read John chapter 6, verse 34 to 51. And they, the crowd, said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So as we read there, we see Jesus picking it up again with him saying, I am the bread of life. He makes an offer to the crowd. And we're going to see how the crowd responds to it. And then Jesus is going to let us in on the reality that's going on behind everything that we can see. But if you go back to verse 34, they say, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus, he really says, Okay, I'll, I'll take you up on that request. But he starts off by saying, I am the bread. And I am going to satisfy ultimately your soul, that you will never hunger again, you will never thirst again. But they said, Give us this bread always. And Jesus, he goes on to emphasize, the always, and if you look at verse 39 and 40, you see the phrase there a couple times that he will raise it up or raise him up on the last day. He's saying, I am offering you satisfaction through me, but I'm also offering you eternal life that will extend beyond death, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or if you jump down to verse 47... It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And one thing we're going to see going throughout the Gospel of John is that eternal life he's talking about is clearly a quality of life and a quantity of life. And then he goes on to talk about their fathers, saying, 
you want me to give you this bread? Well, you're still thinking of this physical manna that Moses gave to your fathers in the wilderness. Well, guess what? Where are they? They're all dead. They ate that bread in the wilderness and they died. I'm giving you bread that someone can eat and not die and live forever. He's offering eternal life, eternal security. Write that down for point number one. Find eternal security in Christ. Find eternal security in Christ. And we talked more last week about the satisfaction that he was offering for our souls, that we would never hunger or thirst again. Today I want to emphasize more what then he gets to, this idea of eternal life and being raised up on the last day. We already talked about life insurance. And one reason why life insurance sells is that everybody knows they are going to die. It's just a matter of when. And the cost of your life insurance is going to depend on some nerd with a calculator in a cubicle somewhere saying, what are your odds? You know, and how is that going to affect you? But Jesus is saying, I want to take care of the problem altogether for you. That whoever believes me, there's these different phrases used, not die and raised up. And we'll see this a little bit later in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. And when I mean a little bit later, I mean maybe a couple years. We'll, we'll see. Uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So this idea is, hey, you might die physically, but if your faith is in Christ, you will live forever. That even when you die, you will be with the Lord, and someday your body even will be raised up. This is the offer that Jesus is making. He is offering eternal life. Jesus was very clear when you read that he was offering life that extended beyond death. Life that lasted for eternity. And he was clear about it then. The church needs to be clear about it now. We are here seeking to get people ready for the next life. We, we are seeking to get people ready so they can say, I know my faith is in Christ and so that even if I die, I will live because I have eternal life in Christ. A lot of people are very afraid of death. Very afraid of death. I mean, look around at our world. There's a lot of fear of death out there. And that doesn't mean, well, I'm not afraid of death. I'm going to go jump off a cliff today. No, let's be reasonable. Let's be smart. But I think you, you see even people are willing to trade a lot of things in life for a little bit of security, something that makes them feel a little bit safer. Well, Jesus is offering you something that is absolutely sure, and he's offering it for free. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, will live forever. Will not die. This is the offer that Jesus is making. What a wonderful offer it is. This is why we call it good news. But then we already talked about that bad word right at the beginning, canceled. Canceled. Okay, this, this offer that Jesus is making me of eternal life, can that be canceled? Can I have this eternal life and then, and then lose it? Well, look at verse 37 again. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And the idea is, I mean, he's already said, hey, whoever comes to me, I'm going to give this bread, and and they're never going to hunger, and they're never going to thirst again. And 37, he's kind of saying, whoever comes to me, I'm going to let in. And once I let you in, I'm not going to kick you out. I will never cast you out. And then what's up with verse 38? You know, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then verses 39 and 40 are very clear about what that will is. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will, I mean, he's getting repetitive here. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is saying, my mission is to hold on to the people that I've saved. And every one of them, I'm going to do that. And it brings up this familiar and controversial question. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation. And that can't, I mean, that's a debated question because there are different verses you look at and you say, hmm, I don't know, you look at Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You think of Romans 8, you know, life, death, angels, principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But then you look at verses like Hebrews 3.12, which says, hey, be careful that in any of you, there isn't an evil, unbelieving heart leading some of you to fall away from the living God. And you look at that, and it's like, well, I don't know. Some verses, it seems like, yes, maybe other verses, it seems like, no, well, let me suggest this. Maybe we're not asking the question right. Because can a Christian lose his or her salvation? That's actually not the question that John 6 is asking. John 6 is asking a different question. John 6 is asking, can Christ lose a Christian? And there, I think the answer is, absolutely clear. He says it in verse 37. He makes it clear in verse 38. He reminds us again in verse 39 and again in verse 40 that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. We just saying no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand. Do you believe that? Can Christ lose a Christian? I think the Bible is absolutely clear. The answer is No. And so then when we look at some of these other verses, I think the question we have to ask sometimes ourselves is, am I really a Christian? Have I put my faith in Christ? Or when we see somebody walk away from it all, the question we have to ask is, were they really a Christian? And that's another sermon for another time, and I think we'll even get into some of that next week. But the message that Jesus is making here is, hey, whoever believes in me, I'm offering you eternal life. And once you are in, I've got you. You are secure. Nothing will get canceled. You are safe in my hands. Your eternal destiny is as secure as it can possibly be. Is that not comforting in an uncertain world? That we have an eternity that can be absolutely certain through faith in Christ? That you can look out at this week, this month, this year and say, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. But you can look at eternity and say, I know exactly what's going to happen. I am going to be raised up on the last day. And I will have eternal life that can never be taken away from me.
Now, with all of these things and some other things we're going to talk about this morning, we always have to be careful not to use biblical truths in unbiblical ways. And I know some people, they kind of get, well, if we teach that a Christian can't lose his salvation, will that just give people a false sense of security and make them think, well, I can just kick back and relax on my way to, to heaven and I don't even need to try to grow. I don't even need to try to obey. Well, guess what? The Bible never, ever teaches that. In fact, every time the Bible brings up the idea of heaven and how certain it is, every single time it's meant to encourage believers to stand strong and to run harder. You're going to look at one of those verses if you do the application questions from Galatians 6. Don't grow weary in doing good because we will reap. Our eternity is sure. First Peter, which talks about our inheritance being imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, is meant to encourage persecuted Christians. It's not saying, hey, your inheritance is sure, so you know, just give in to temptation. Just fit in with the crowd. No, it's saying, hey, stand strong because eternity is sure. This is what Jesus is offering. Eternal security, eternal life, eternal satisfaction. Well, let's look at the response here. How does the crowd respond? Well, Jesus already tells us in verse 36. After he's made the offer, he, he's saying, you've already made your response clear. I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You, you don't believe. Or then go down to verse 41. And when it gets back to the Jews, when Jesus is done talking, the crowd says that they grumbled about him. And they're like, wait a minute. We know Jesus. We know his dad. We know his family. Where did he get so full of crazy ideas that he came down from heaven? And then Jesus, in verse 43, says, do not grumble. Now, let's review a little bit. What have we been talking about? Bread from heaven. Who are the Jews talking about saying, hey, give us you know, bread from heaven like Moses? What were the Jews doing in the wilderness with Moses? Grumbling, right? This is deja vu all over again. That just like the Israelites grumbled against Moses, now they're grumbling against Jesus. Same problem, different time, different circumstance. Jesus is saying, hey, the bottom line is you're unwilling to believe. You need a sign? Look at what I just did. The problem is, your heart is hard. And there's a word for that that we use all the time, stubborn. Which if you just look up stubborn in a dictionary, this is what it says, having or showing dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position on something, especially in spite of good arguments or reasons to do so. Jesus is saying, look, look at the miracle I just did. Look at what I am teaching you, but you refuse to believe. And you choose to grumble, your problem is you're stubborn. Point number two, let's write it down this way today. See the danger of spiritual stubbornness. See the danger of spiritual stubbornness. And if you want to keep a finger in Psalm or in, in John chapter 6, you can flip back to the Psalm that Pastor Charlie read earlier, Psalm 81, because this talks about the same thing. In fact, it even uses the same words. In, in verse 8, or starting in verse 10, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. 
That offer sounds strangely familiar to what we're reading about today. Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I will satisfy your soul. Open your mouth, basically, and I will fill it. Verse 11, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And then jumping down to verse 16, but he, the Lord, he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. He's saying, look at what I am offering you, but it's your stubborn heart and your refusal to listen to me that is keeping you from God. And there's many people today, and there's probably some people in this room this morning that you need to admit it is your stubbornness that is keeping you from God. There's so many excuses that people want to use these days. I mean, one, people don't want to admit that they are sinners who need a Savior. And they are stubborn in that. And we talked about that some last week. Some people, they, they want a sign. I mean, that's what they said here in John chapter 6. Hey, Jesus, show us a sign. And literally, if you go out and share your faith, you will have people today tell you that. Well, if God's real, why doesn't he knock down that tree over there? They will say things like that to you today. But I think even in the world that we're living in, people today will say, well, I want an explanation. How can I really believe in God? Because I have all of these questions. And here's the deal. I firmly believe that there is more sound reason to believe biblical Christianity than any other alternative out there in the world. I think there's good reason to believe it. And you here who are Christians, don't be intimidated by the world out there. That, oh, I'm some crazy person for believing the Bible. No, you're not. What the world is throwing out is crazy. And when you want to get intimidated, well, what if they ask me, well, if God is real, how is there so much evil in the world? I don't know if I could answer that question. Well, how do they even know what evil is? They can't even ask the question because they have nothing to base it off. If, they're a, if they have a secular, atheistic worldview, how can they even tell what is right from wrong? There is good reason to believe the Bible. And I'm sure there's some of you here today that you you haven't jumped in to follow Christ yet. You haven't given your life to him. And you'd say, well, I have questions. I don't want to minimize those questions. Those questions are worth asking. But I also want to show you the Bible has answers worth digging into. And I think for many people, the I have questions is just a smokescreen for I'm stubborn. And I have the same problem that the people here had, that the people weren't willing to give up what they wanted for what Jesus wanted. That's the bottom line problem for most people today and probably for some of you in this room. There are questions. Great, let's get together. Let's talk about them because I'm confident we'll find answers. But for many of you, you, you don't even really ask the questions. You don't even really look into the questions because the bottom line is not the questions. It's your heart. And even if you could have all of your questions answered to your intellectual satisfaction, you would still find a reason to not follow Christ. Because the bottom line is, you don't want to. And I know there's many of you in this room that have said, no, I've, I know I'm stubborn. And I have 
called out to God to save me, to soften my heart. I have put my faith in Christ. I am confident that I have that eternal life that Jesus is talking about. Well, guess what? We still fight against stubbornness every single day. I mean, look at verse 35 again. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If all of us are being honest, there's some times in life where we feel things and we do things based on hunger and thirst, even in a spiritual sense. And we need to be clear when we do that and when we give in to sin, when we fail to trust God, when we choose to to worry instead of trusting His promises, it's not because Jesus isn't there. It's not because the offer of the bread of life isn't every day for you as a believer on the table. It's because we're choosing to be stubborn and to say, I'm going to figure it out myself or I'm going to give in to this instead of trusting the offer that Jesus is making me. The old hymn says it well in the chorus. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's see, our problem this week is not our circumstances or anything else going on. Our biggest problem is our stubborn heart continuing to not trust God when he has proven himself faithful every single time. Let's pray for that grace to trust him even more. And the reality is that it takes grace to trust him even more. We've seen the offer, Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. Come to me, believe in me, and you will have satisfaction and security forever. We see the response. The crowd is is stubborn. They don't want to believe. Well, then Jesus lets us in on the reality. Look at verse uh, 44, where now he's rebuked them, do not grumble among yourselves. And then verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's saying the reality is you are so stubborn that it's going to take an act of God to change your heart. And then he says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. This is a quote from, we think, from Isaiah 54, 13. And it has shades of a couple other passages that we refer to in the Old Testament as prophecies of the new covenant. We jot these references down. Jeremiah 31, 31. And Ezekiel 36, 26. And in passages like this, God says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to cleanse you. And he says things like this. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to remove your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And he talks about, I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I'm going to write my law on your heart. God's saying, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something amazing where I give you a new heart and a new ability to do what I say. And Jesus is just echoing what the Old Testament taught, that you are stubborn. You have a heart of stone. And unless the Father gives you a new heart, you're going to continue to rebel. Point number three, let's write it down this way. Trust the God who must work and will work to save souls. Trust the God who must work and will work to save souls. And I think all around Scripture, you can't get around this idea that if we are saved, 
It is because God has done something in our hearts. He has a foundational role in our salvation. We see it right here. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And even that word draw was sometimes used to refer of drawing water up from a well. And that's a pretty decisive action. I mean, that's maybe not a daily experience that we have of going to a well. But imagine going to a well with, you know, a bucket, right? You don't stand at the top of the well and say, here water, here water, I got the bucket right here. No, you put the bucket in and you draw the water out. He draws us to himself. And all throughout scripture, the image is of I was dead but now I'm alive. Ephesians 2. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. 2 Corinthians 4 puts it so well. It's basically saying, hey, the same God who said, let there be light in creation, when we get saved, he's basically saying, let there be light in our hearts. And he's opening up our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But when we look at these biblical realities, it puts us in this spot where we start to grapple with these two things that that the Bible teaches, but it's really hard for us sometimes to put them together. Divine sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and human responsibility. To us, we look at it and it's like, how does it fit? How does it work? If if God has to draw me, then am I not making a, a, a real choice? And here's the bottom line. We have a lot more problems with this idea than Jesus does. I mean, just look, verse 43, he's rebuking them saying, do not grumble. He's saying, guys, this is on you. Don't grumble. And then the next sentence, he's saying, you can't come to me unless the Father draws me. Jesus has no problem with this. Or in verse 36, he's saying, he's rebuking them for their disbelief. But then in the next verse, he's saying, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in in London in the 1800s, and somebody once asked him, hey, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, how do you try and reconcile the two? And Spurgeon said, I don't don't try to. And they said, well, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I would never try to reconcile friends. I mean, they're already friends. What, what, What reconciling do I need to do? Jesus has no problem with it. And as much as we try to balk at this when it comes to The Bible, I mean, I think you probably deal with situations every day in your life where you see God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and you have no problem holding on to both of them at the same time. Let's say you go to lunch today after church, and you go to Boise Fry Company, and you order some regular russet fries with sea salt and garlic aioli sauce on the side, which, by the way, if you're going to go there, that's the way to do it. You're welcome. But then out comes a bowl of curly purple fries with rosemary garlic sprinkled on and and fry sauce on the side. Well, in that moment, I would hope as a Christian, you acknowledge that God is sovereign and that was not an accident. And that, that reality might help you keep your cool, be patient, right, in that situation. But I think at the same time, you're gonna hold them responsible. You're not gonna walk up to the counter and say, hey, I ordered reg, hey, never mind, guys. God's sovereign, it wasn't your fault anyway, so I'm just going to eat it, right? No, you're going to hold them responsible, but again, because you acknowledge God is sovereign, you're going to be polite, you're not going to be a jerk. You're just going to say, hey, this isn't what I ordered, can I get the regular russets, right? You're going to hold them responsible, even though you're acknowledging that God is sovereign. We do this all the time in daily life, but when it comes to things like salvation, we're like, oh, how does it work? And I think what a lot of people do is they, instead of saying, hey, 
God is sovereign, yet I am responsible. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. We clearly see it in this passage. We try to resolve it to one side or the other. And whichever side you try to go to, you're going to end up in a ditch of thinking things and saying things that just aren't biblical, right? If you want to say, no, it's, it's really about me and, and my choice. I mean, how do you get around? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's, that's what Jesus is saying right there. But then if you start saying, well, you know, God's sovereign, and you start becoming fatalistic and saying, well, I don't know if prayer really matters. I don't know about evangelism or effort or all these other things. Well, now you're, none of that is biblical either. And we have to be careful not to use biblical truths in unbiblical ways. And let me just highlight one, just as a pastor from years of talking to people and people wrestling with big questions, this is one unbiblical way that I see people use truths like this in this passage because people will come to me and they'll say, and it's usually one of two ways, they'll, they'll ask some question of the effect of, well, pastor, what if I'm not one of the elect? <gasps> right? Well, guess what? That's another question the Bible never asks and never teaches you to ask. Because the people worried saying, well, wait, what if I, I want to believe, but, but, but I'm not, he hasn't drawn me. Well, what do I do, pastor? And I'm like, did you read the passage? It says, whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. It says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. And by the way, whoever comes to me that the Father gives to me, I'm not going to cast out. So person, you're worried about some unbiblical boogeyman that doesn't exist. God says if you put your faith in him, he's got you. But then there's other people who ask the same question, but they're not, oh, I, well, I want to be saved, and I'm worried maybe that I'm not. Their beef is, oh, yeah, I'm not sure about all of this, and well, you just said unless God draws me, there's nothing I can do about it, so I am guess I'm just going to sit here and wait for God to draw me, and unless I start getting goosebumps, eh, this is a bunch of crock, Right? Also not biblical. What does Jesus do? He holds them accountable for their unbelief. And if you're here sitting today, well, I'm just waiting for God to draw me. God is telling you right now, repent and believe. And he's holding you responsible for that. Don't use biblical truths in unbiblical ways. And I want to just end with, hey, I think even from this passage, there are two biblical ways we should respond to this truth. And the first, when we see how Jesus presents this, he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is making an offer. He is giving a gift. Because he's already made it clear, this isn't something that you can earn. This is something I am giving to you. One biblical way we should respond to this truth about the sovereignty of God is this humble gratitude. Humble gratitude. And that's one of the things that I'm going to encourage you to do this week if you go through the application questions. It's just to make a list of spiritual blessings in your life. And then to ask the question, what did I do to deserve these? And I'll give you a hint. Nothing. That's the answer I'm looking for. If you are a Christian, you should look around your life and say, wow, look at all of this that I have. I have satisfaction. I have confidence for the future and eternal life. And I didn't I couldn't do anything to earn it. And it's unfortunate that many people who are known for trying to teach this idea of, hey, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, are known for being proud. Well, wow, we've managed to flip truth on its head. 
We should be the most humble people in the world. Last week, we read Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2, which says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Saying, hey, I'm inviting you to a feast and it's all free. And if we are here as believers eating this feast, we should be grateful. We should be the most thankful people in the world. The other biblical way I think we should respond to the truth that we're seeing in this passage is not just humble gratitude, but also confident service. Confident service. We, Jesus is talking about this truth even, that hey, they can't come unless the Father draws him, but he's doing it in the face of the crowd, seeing a clear miracle, yet still choosing to reject him. Jesus is basically saying, guys, I'm bothered by your unbelief, and it's, it's wrong, but I'm not phased by it. Because I know that God is working. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will not cast them out. This idea of him saying, hey, I know God's working. And even when I see people not responding, I'm going to trust that God, I know he must work, but I know that he will work. Consider this statement from the Apostle Paul as he is in prison, about to be killed. He's saying, I'm in chains, but I know the gospel isn't in chains. And he says this, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's saying, I know my service of God is not a waste of time. And even if they kill me for my faith, God's going to keep working. And if you're, if you're like me, maybe your frustration with like, the world and how it's going is at an all-time high. Any other amens in the congregation? Can that maybe sometimes make you just get into a dark place and say, nobody's going to believe. Our world, it's just, it's just too far gone. These people around me, they're just too far gone. My relatives, they're too far gone. And I know maybe... Many of you here, I moved to Idaho to get away from all the craziness. Well, forget Compass Bible Church. Let's go start Compass Bible Compound in the mountains just to get away from it all. And just, we'll, we'll just hunker down until Jesus comes back. Well, that's not the mission that he's given us. And when we start to think in that and we just start to feel hopeless, even to see God working, we're rejecting the truth of what the Bible teaches, that God has promised he is going to keep working. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he said, and I'm going to be with you always even to the end of the age. So the good news is our eternity is not canceled. And it will never be canceled. But until then, our mission isn't canceled either. That now we are the ones meant to be going to the world saying, here's the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Believe in him and you will never hunger or thirst again. As we hopefully renew our hope and our confidence in our eternity, may that also renew our zeal for our mission to make disciples for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for what Jesus offers. God, I, I thank you, Lord, just personally in the midst of a world that's so uncertain. God, where we don't know what's going to happen. 
we can know still the end of the story. We don't know the chapters in the middle, but we know the story will end with us being raised up on the last day with Christ, God, that we will see Him face to face, that we will be with Him forever. God, we praise You for that. And I pray that that would give us peace today, a peace that the world can't understand, God. And we pray that You would do the work of of changing stubborn hearts, God, Uh, taking out hearts of stone and putting in hearts of flesh, God, and that we would be committed to that mission, God, prayerfully, eagerly seeking to share the good news of Jesus Christ, God, and not getting discouraged, Lord, not losing faith in the midst of a dark world, but trusting that you are still working and you will keep working until Christ comes back. God, so may we be committed to that mission. God, protect us, Lord, Just build us up in our faith. May we encourage one another. And we thank you for the time we've had this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.